Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. This morning we have a very sober topic to address. Many people question the justice of God, particularly in light of the biblical teaching that God will judge some people by sending them to hell forever. This passage is a significant passage for answering something of the justice of God. Now realize that our understanding of God and His ways are always incomplete. There's never a total answer that we can come to and ultimately we bow before God in humility and accept the rightness of who He is and what He has said. But people question... How can God be just and judge people in this way? Isn't it true that God is all loving and all merciful? Well, it's true that the Bible says that God is all love. But it doesn't say that love is all God is. God is love, but He's also just. He is merciful, but He's also wrathful. He will not let sin go unpunished. But we will see in this section today, where we'll look at chapter 19, verse 11 through 2015, that the judgment of God is sure and that it is just. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, speaks of the temporal judgment of sin. Chapter 20 speaks of the eternal judgment of sin. So first of all, the temporal judgment of sin And this section breaks into three paragraphs. Verses 11 to 16 describe Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, arrayed as a warrior coming to conquer and defeat his enemy in battle. 17 and 18 are an invitation to the vultures of the sky to come and partake of those who have been slain in the last battle. And 19 to 21 describe this battle in which Christ's foes are killed. So first of all, 11 to 16, the description of Jesus Christ, the conquering king. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're told in the first verse that Jesus Christ, riding as a warrior into battle, is called faithful and true, because in righteousness he judges and wages war. There's no capriciousness in his judgment. He doesn't come and judge rebellious humanity because there's some personal pick on his part. 
or a loss of self-control and he blows up and can't help it. No, it's in righteousness that he judges. Now, two aspects of the character of Christ are stressed in this section. The first is his fierceness. In verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire, piercing and fearful in his countenance. In verse 13, his, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. It's a very gruesome figure, one drawn from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 62. It's in keeping with the kind of poetry that was uh, uh, current in the ancient Near East, which is very flamboyant, unrestrained in its expression. And here we have pictured Jesus Christ without any squeamishness on his part that would keep him from executing the judgment that, that is due to mankind. In verse 15, a sharp sword comes out of his mouth, ready to pierce his enemies. Second aspect of his character that's stressed is his sovereignty. We have three names of Christ in this uh, passage. First, we're told that in 12 that he has a name written upon him which no one except himself knows. In other words, his character, his person are unfathomable to the human mind. We cannot hope to fully ever comprehend what he is truly like. And yet, he is called the Word of God, verse 13. He is not the Holy Other or some abstract, far-removed, unknowable deity as in many Eastern religions. He has been revealed to us. He is the Word of God, God's expression of truth, revelation to us so that we can indeed and in truth know God. And the final name in this passage he is known as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In verse 12, on his head are many diadems. There are two words for crowns in the Greek language. One is Stephanos, which we've encountered elsewhere, which we as the saints will receive. The Stephanos is the victor's wreath. The victor in an athletic or military contest receives it. The diadem is the king's crown. And upon the head of Jesus Christ are many crowns because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is pictured this way because He will put down the rebellion of man once and for all. Verse 15 describes this in the words of Psalm 2. He will smite the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Let's turn back to Psalm 2 and get a fuller picture of what is being alluded to here. Man has been in rebellion against God. God has patiently delayed judgment, but He lets us know that the judgment is coming. It is sure. In Psalm 2 we read, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart. And cast away their cords from us, these kings say. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, much as a father might laugh at his uh, two-year-old child who is plotting to rebel and overthrow the parent's rule and be the king of the house. Then God will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. This is in, in the words of Revelation, he will smite the nations. Thou shalt, uh, excuse me, that's the uh, ruling with the rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. The picture is that of the nations rebelling against God and saying, God, we are going to run our lives. This is our world. We are in control. Get out of here. We're going to be kings. And God laughs at their impudence, at their foolishness. And he says, but as for me, I have appointed my king. I have chosen the one who is to rule. And I will give him the nations as his inheritance. And he will rule with a rod of iron and in the end smash all opposition as you might smash a clay pot. How foolish of the kings of the earth. How foolish of us as well when we follow in their pattern, when we think, I'm going to be the God of my life. I'm going to run it. I'm going to throw off all the strictures that God places upon me through His rule. I'm going to do my own thing and be my own boss. And we think foolishly that we can get away with it. That we can, we can rule our own lives and end up with happiness and fulfillment when that only ends up in judgment and despair and corruption. So Jesus Christ is pictured as the King of Kings upon His horse coming for this battle, coming again to once and for all put down the rebellion of men. In verses 17 and 18, we read of the invitation to the birds to prepare for this battle. And I saw an angel standing in the sun... And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Again, a very gruesome image. It's in keeping with the culture of those days and the flamboyancy and the unrestrained nature of the imagery that's evoked through their poetic literature. We notice here in this chapter that there are two feasts. Last week, David spoke about the earlier one, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those who partake of that are invited to come to be honored guests at the wedding of the, uh, of the Lamb, of His Son. As a matter of fact, we're to be in, as well the bride, because we as the church make up the bride of Christ. Alternatively, we are told, if we fail to respond to that invitation, we ourselves may be the feast, the feast for the birds of the air who are come, who are invited to come and partake of those who are slain in this put down of the rebellion towards Christ. In 19 to 21, we see this battle described. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, to understand this battle more fully, we have to piece together several scriptures. In chapter 16 of Revelation, this is described as the battle of Armageddon. In Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're told there that God himself will actually raise an army of of the unbelievers to come against his people in Jerusalem. They will be largely successful in destroying the city and slaughtering the people. But then when it looks as if they're on the verge of final victory, God himself will appear. Jesus Christ will come in the sky and come down and vanquish these foes of God's people. Now the question comes to my mind, why does God choose to act in this way? Why does Christ not simply snap his fingers and they're all dead? Why does he choose to appear in a battle and be personally and visibly involved? Well, the answer, I think, is because he is vindicating to all people the judgment which he is executing. Look at verse 19 again. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, against Christ. When he appears in the sky, do they say, we've been wrong. Here is God himself. Let us bow before him and acknowledge our error and make him our king. No. They say, God, what are you doing here? This is our world. Let us gather and fight against God and throw off his fetters and we will rule our own destinies. Mankind is shown to be what it's really like. Fallen humanity and all of its impudence and rebellion trying to resist Christ. When people come under judgment, it's not because they have been given an unfair uh, shake. It's not because they just happen to have the wrong influences. Maybe a a hypocritical Christian had come into their life and and, uh, had turned them off. Or that or religion had been crammed down their throats as, as a youngster, and so they'd been turned off to it. Or they grew in a land where they didn't even hear. No, men come under judgment because they've rebelled against the truth that they've known. Even when Christ himself appears in the clouds, people gather in an army to fight against him. Let me read another passage in, that speaks of the vindication of God's own honor that will take place in this battle. We read to you from Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 14 to 16. God says to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, which is one of the enemies from the north, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? So be a time, when they, apparently when the Antichrist makes a, a covenant of peace with Israel, they're living securely. At the end of this period, the the nations rise up against Israel. He says, And you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me 
when I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. God will be sanctified. That word means he'll be set apart as holy. He'll be recognized for who he is. You see, during the current age, people are questioning God. How can a good God be in control of this world? Look at the mess we're in. If he was really there, he'd do something about it. And evil people rebel against God and they apparently get away with it. And they laugh. We've gotten away with something. God's not going to judge me. But God says in the end, through this battle, he will be vindicated. He will be shown to be who he is. Man has been able to rebel thus far not because of the impotence of God, merely because of the patience. In forbearance, God has been giving men chance after chance to repent. But a time will come when he will come in this battle and he will be vindicated and that he will be shown to be just because human nature will be revealed for what it is and he will be shown to be powerful because it will be seen that his that the extent of man's rebellion thus far has not been due, been due to God's own lack of power and strength. In verse 20 we read that the 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 beast or the antichrist and the false prophet his helper will be thrown directly into the lake of, of fire for their eternal punishment the people who are in the battle will be killed in other words they will undergo temporal judgment but not yet eternal judgment the time in which they come before the judgment seat of Christ will be delayed as we will see in the next chapter So in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, we see the temporal judgment of sin and the justice of that judgment. In chapter 20, we see the eternal judgment of sin and the justice of that judgment. First, verses 1 to 3, we see the binding of Satan temporarily. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. So the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire immediately. Satan himself is bound temporarily and put into the abyss for a thousand years that he might not deceive the nations. Now the question comes, why does God not send him to his judgment at this point? Why the delay? Our answer will come momentarily. But first we see in verses 4 to 6, this period of a thousand years known as the millennium, so named after the Latin word for a thousand. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The rest of humanity is left to be resurrected after this period so they can go before the judgment of God. There's probably no chapter of Scripture that has created more controversy and divergence of interpretation than this chapter, Revelation chapter 20. And bear with me as we run through a brief theology lesson to acquaint you with, with the issue. The different positions are named, interpretations are named by their relationship or their interpretation of the millennium and the relationship of the second coming of Christ to it. First, there's the three major ones. First, there's post-millennialism. And this theory holds that Christ will come post or after the millennium. Those who hold this view teach that there will be a golden age at the end of this church era in which the church will triumph on earth and will be spread throughout the whole earth. And after this millennium, this golden age, then Christ will come. That belief was very popular in churches in America in the last century. is uh, almost died out. There are very few who hold it today, though there are some. A second position is called premillennialism. According to this view, Christ will come pre or before the millennium. In other words, Christ will come, will set up a thousand-year reign upon the earth. At the end of that time, the great judgment, the last judgment will come. A third view is called amillennialism, ah meaning not. According to this view, there's no millennium. It's just a symbol. So there's no literal thousand years. Uh, this view actually is probably the most prevalent one in the church today and certainly has been throughout the ages, which may surprise you because most of us have been uh, most acquainted with the premillennial view. All millennialists include such uh, uh, greats in church history as uh, Augustine and Calvin and Luther, such notable modern Christians as John Stott and J.I. Packer. They see the binding of Satan in verses 1 to 3 to be the binding which Jesus did during his earthly ministry. In Mark 3, when he was accused of casting out demons by Satan, he said, a strong man cannot be plundered until he is first bound, indicating that in some way he has bound Satan through his earthly ministry, thus able to plunder his house and cast demons out of those who have been so afflicted. The resurrection of verse 4, they interpret to be either the, the spiritual resurrection which takes place when we become Christians, we're born again, we're resurrected to newness of life, or the figurative resurrection which takes place only in our spirits when we die and our spirits go to be in heaven to reign with Christ until he should come again. And we're, our bodies are reunited to us at the resurrection day. Now, the problems, there are two major problems I see with this view. One is that it seems patently obvious to me that Satan is not bound today such that he cannot deceive the nations. In 1 John 5, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we're told that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of, of the gospel in the face of Christ. So he is still deceiving. He has not been bound yet. It won't take place till the future. Secondly, within this book itself, in chapter 5, verse 10, we are told that the saints will reign with Christ on the earth. It's not a, uh, a figurative reign in heaven. Now, there are difficulties with the premillennial view. One is the question that is often raised, 
if this is a literal reign on the earth, why does the book of Revelation, indeed, why do all the epistles omit any mention of all those numerous Old Testament predictions of an earthly reign of the Messiah? And it is a difficulty. My answer to that is that is in the nature of the progress of Revelation. As you know, in the Old Testament, God only reveals certain facts of, of uh, His truth to people. We in the New have, gained, have gotten more revelation, more uh, of His truth has been revealed to us. In the Old Testament, it appeared that the earthly reign of Christ, of the Messiah, was the ultimate towards which everything uh, was moving. And the conception of uh, uh, the eternal state, the eternity after that, was very hazy. In the New Testament, we see that the earthly reign of Christ uh, is merely a step towards the ultimate. And the ultimate here in this book is, is pictured in chapters 21 and 22. The, the eternal state, the way things will be forever and ever, not merely for a thousand years. And so the New Testament does not emphasize the millennium the same way the, the Old Testament does because we see that in the final analysis it doesn't have the importance that, that it seemed from the different perspective to have. Well, the saints will be resurrected to reign with Christ during this time. Now, simply the martyrs, the martyred saints, are, are uh, uh, pictured here not because they're the only ones that will reign. In 2 Timothy 2, we're told that if we endure with Christ, we all will reign with Him. But they are singled out for special notice to give them encouragement that they might maintain themselves under the opposition that they're, they're laboring under, even to the point of persecution and death. And we too are reminded that this life is not the ultimate. It's not all there is for us. We right now, the scriptures tell us, are in a training program. We who are believers are all princes and princesses, judges and administrators, being prepared by God and equipped, trained to rule with Him, with Christ, through this millennial reign and through all of eternity. And so the trials and the pressures, the difficulties that we face here are to prepare us, to help us to grow and mature, so we will be ready to share His rule and do so in righteousness. At the end of this thousand years, Satan is released. And we read about this in verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which are symbolic names for the enemies of God's people to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. For the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. It's apparent that during this thousand years, there will be unbelievers on the earth. Possibly some unbelievers get in the beginning. Certainly some are born to uh, parents during this time. However it works out, there's, there are unbelievers of such number that Satan is able to gather up a, a large army to try once more 
to throw off the yoke of the rule of God and to exert himself and men's selves as the ultimate rulers of this earth. This rebellion is put down very quickly as fire is called down from heaven and they are devoured. And it's only at this point that Satan meets his doom. He's not pictured in the, in the Bible as the king of hell as he often is in popular literature. He is one who is sent to the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever, we are told. But now let's return to that question. Why was Satan's doom postponed? Why was he not judged immediately like the beast and the false prophet? Why did God allow this kind of final rebellion to take place and all of the misery and suffering that it undoubtedly entail, would entail? Well, our answer is found in seeing what follows this section. Let's look at verses 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the, great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are, were written in the books according to their deeds. And the earth gave up the dead from uh, which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God allows this final rebellion to precede the last judgment, to show all that His judgment is just. People make excuses. They say, well, I just didn't know. Or my circumstances were such that, that uh, they weren't conducive to my coming to Christ. And certainly I should be excused from the judgment day. But humanity is shown to be what it is. People, even after living under a reign of Christ, a perfect reign for a thousand years, where there's no poverty, there's no economic or social injustice of any kind, there's no lack of information about the true God, even then, people still rebel. Join this army for the last attempt to throw off the rule of God. And thus, Humanity is shown to be what it really is. To as, uh, and this precedes the judgment day to vindicate the judgment of God. Unless there be any who say, well, I'm not to blame. We might remember the uh, song of Bob Dylan several years ago, I Shall Be Released, in which he pictures the judgment day. And he says, I see a man in the lonely crowd who swears he's not to blame. He thinks he's been framed. He shouldn't be there. And God says, okay, you think you've been framed? Let's open up the books and see. And two books are opened. The book of life, then a set of books, the books of deeds. In the book of life, it's seen whether or not each person has their name written, whether or not they have made a commitment of faith to Jesus Christ and have accepted the salvation which He has to offer. And the book of deeds are opened. So God says, okay, you think you've been framed? Let's examine the books. If you've lived a life of perfection, with no breaking of my law, 
then certainly you should be admitted to heaven. You shouldn't be judged. But if you've lived a life in which there is sin, rebellion, in which you are guilty, then judgment should come. And of course, on that basis, all mankind falls short, comes under the just judgment of God. We're told that no one escapes this judgment. The sea gives up its dead. Death and Hades are personified as as enemies of God. They give up their dead. Then they go into the lake of fire, the last of God's enemies to be put down. And then judgment is executed upon humanity. How does this apply to us? Well, if we, if any are not Christians, and the application of this section is patently obvious. Namely, Christ says that a judgment day is coming. A judgment which will be inescapable. And we have the option of coming in that judgment day before Him saying, I'm going to trust in my own righteousness. I think I'm good enough to save myself in spite of the fact that we've been breakers of God's law. God says, one transgression of my law makes you a lawbreaker, deserving of eternal punishment so serious as sin. And yet God gives us the alternative. And He says, come, join the wedding feast. Be a partaker of it. All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation. Acknowledge that you're unable to save yourselves and take that which I freely offer to you. For those of us who are already Christians, I'd like to suggest two applications. One is that we need to treat sin the same way God does. It's apparent from these chapters that God takes sin very seriously. It's worthy of this eternal judgment. And yet, how often we take sin lightly in our own lives. We categorize certain things as little sins. Well, it's okay just to indulge in little gossip, a little slander. After all, everybody else does it. It's okay to complain and gripe and argue. We can ignore the passage that says, do all things without complaining and arguing. We can stir strife up among the brotherhood and be a root of bitterness because we don't like the way somebody has done something or not done something or said something or not done some, said something and we treat it as, uh, as insignificant. Or we can become callous and cold-hearted and we forget that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to t- take sin seriously. Not such that we try to punish ourselves for our transgressions. Christ has taken all the punishment upon Himself. We need to avoid the temptation to try to punish ourselves through extended guilt trips. But we do need to take it seriously and judge sin. Say, that is wrong, no matter how small and insignificant it might appear to man. Rebellion against God is serious. I need to turn from it. Second avenue of application I'd like to suggest here is that we need to see what human nature is really like. We see here in two ways mankind rebelling against Christ. And though we are new creatures, born again, we still carry with us the old man. We still have the potential at any time to go back and live in the flesh, to depend upon ourselves, to rebel against God, and at least for a time. I'm reminded of the story in Luke 22 about Peter. The night that Jesus was about to be betrayed, 
night before he was killed, he said to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded your life to sift you like wheat, but I'll pray for you and you'll return. Peter says, Oh, Lord, don't worry about me. I'll follow you to death or to prison. I'm not going to fail. Jesus says, Peter, it's not so. This very night, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows at morning. Indeed, Peter did. We need to recognize that though we can have confidence in God and His power within us, we need to have a holy humility and sobriety about life, recognizing that at any moment we can fail. And we need to live in in continual dependence upon Him, realizing that life is a battle, that we in our own human nature are susceptible to sin at every turn. We do not live in fear because we have the confidence He's within us. And He who is within us is greater than He who is in the world. And yet we need to, to live with that vigilance and sobriety. Well, as we think about the last judgment, one thing that we should do is rejoice. Rejoice in humble gratitude because God has provided the means of salvation for us. He has done that which is necessary so that we can have confidence not because we are good, but because He has given to us the gift of righteousness. So let's... Lord God, we are sobered as we think upon that which we have read and studied this morning. But we do thank You for the gracious salvation which You have given us. We acknowledge before You that we are unworthy. And apart from Your grace, we would be in that battle on the wrong side fighting against You as we have done in the past in our own private ways. Help us, Lord, to submit to You on a daily, moment-by-moment basis as our Lord of lords and King of kings. Help us, Lord, to extend this message of Your goodness and salvation to the lost world around us here in Boise and throughout the whole world. Help us to take the issues of life seriously. Depend upon You. We are desperately in need of You, Lord, to live righteous lives. We thank You for what You give us. In Jesus' name, Amen.